Oh, hi. <laughs> I'm Shadow Stevens. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Wheezy, John. So you're in the studio. You can see me. I've got right now. I've got like this headphone on my on my head. You do. But normally, like my hair is kind of you know my hair is my thing. My I'm very I'm very my hair is kind of a signature for me. Okay. And I haven't changed my hairdo in about thirty years, maybe more. But anyway, so I'm very attached to this part of me because I think it represents me. I think people associate it with me. You know, it's kind of become a sign that with my feathers, especially my feathers in my hair, which I started because my hairdresser, who is Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City, you know, when I was coming out to LA um, a dozen years ago, I had a guy in New York that I went to for years and I was really traumatized that I was moving to Los Angeles and I was going to have to find a new hairdresser and I was pretty freaked out about it because I don't, yeah, it's, that's... Your hair is your thing. Yeah, anything yeah. else, you know, I'll go to, yeah, but no, and actually that's not true. I'm loyal to, like, the same doctor, the same, anyway, so my friend Kathleen Wilhoyt, Fabulous actress, fabulous singer. Her. You, Kathleen's fabulous. Yeah. She suggested that I go to Cindy. I loved her hair, and I I was scared. And it was before we moved out here, like six months before, so I could find somebody before. Right? I was like looking for a house and looking for a hairdresser. Those okay. were the two important okay. things. Yeah. So And the schools. It was all about the schools. Well, anyway, so I go to Cindy, and she does my hair the first time, and it's magic. And so now it's 12 years later. Nobody touches my hair but Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City. She is phenomenal. She does my highlights because I'm not a natural salt and pepper. No, I, somebody said I had salt and pepper. I don't have gray in my hair. No, it's blonde and whatever other color that is. And there's a lot of that. And it's kind of very stripey and, and kind of not natural looking, which I love. And it's very choppy and, and kind of... It's an event. It's an event. The hair is an event. And Cindy is brilliant every time. And, you know, like I, I look back at pictures and I see that, you know, it's changed minimally, you know, through like, and, you know, each time when I do it, I'm like, oh, I liked it better last time until like two weeks later and then I love it. Anyway, I can't recommend her highly enough. I love, love, love her. So if you are looking for somebody that you can trust, depend on, who's fantastic and who's so much fun, I, she's become one of my best friends, go to Cindy Wright at Quaff in Studio City. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, Wheezy. Hey, John. Hello. Hey, Vicki. How are you guys doing tonight? Excellent. doing good. We're, do we're doing well. You doing good? You know, that's good. You know, doing good is a choice, I've discovered. Um, I can choose to be happy 
And what's funny is when I make that choice, I really am. And if I choose to be in my head and to obsess and to worry and to be in fear, then that's where I end up. Um, I don't know when this show is going to air, but yesterday was Valentine's Day. And, you know, these holidays are really tricky. Um, I don't care if you're if you're mated or you're single. They're tricky because there are landmines. Right, John? If you're a mate, what would you do for Valentine's Day yesterday for you? What would you do? Well, we have a funny tradition because my wife does not buy into the uh, overinflated costs of Valentine's Day. You are such a lucky man. And it took a couple years when we were first dating for me to believe it. Uh-huh. And so we don't get out, go out of our, you know, we don't go out to a restaurant. We don't buy roses, but we tell each other we love her and each other, but we didn't go crazy. You know, I was telling somebody today that I think Valentine's Day, uh, like uh, uh, New Year's Eve is party day for amateurs. <laughs> Valentine's Day is sort of love day for amateurs. It's like if you love somebody, you love them every day. You express that love every day. So to have a have to have to have a day of love just seems so. But I think what it I think the day is kind. Louise, what did you guys do for Valentine's Day? How did you, how do you commemorate it? I my memory is this. I'm at my computer the night before Valentine's Day. I don't know the date, and my <laughs> husband comes up behind me and whispers in my ear, "Can we agree that we're not doing?" We're not giving each other gifts. And I just went, sure. And then uh, he went to bed. And the next day I I was like, oh, he meant today. All right, good. I don't have to get him anything. (laughs) You know, because if you think about it, there's like there's like his birthday. Mm -hmm. Then there's Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then there's maybe Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, your anniversary. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I mean, how many times a year do you have to think, oh, what am I going to get for this person? So I, you know, I'm totally cool with saying, can we sit this one out? Yes. You know, I I think that... um it depends on where you are in your relationship yes. or where you, and how old you are and where you are in your life and how much other celebration there is in your life. You know, there have been times in my life, my most romantic, I, I wrote about this in my book, my most romantic Valentine's Day had no card, no flowers, no candy. My, my young beau, who was just a very romantic guy, I woke up. And he was naked except for the guitar, and he sang me the Elvis Costello version of My Funny Valentine, and it was the most romantic, gorgeous, fantastic. I mean, it it, it was thirty years ago, and it, it for me it was like it was yesterday. It was one of the best memories of my life. It's it's just fantastic, and and there are other times where I've been upset when I mm. didn't get. You know, the card with the words or, you know, whatever that I, I didn't get what I was longing for. And I've been single for a number of years. So Valentine's Day basically sucks. And, you know, because you, everybody's, you know, hyping all this stuff. But, you know, I have kids. I buy my kids Valentine's, whatever. But so I I kind of started seeing somebody recently. Ooh. Yeah. Do tell. Um, well, you know, it's... The road to romance for me is so wrought with, a, anyway, and not long ago, you may recall, I had a very horrible experience with an imposter person. I do person, Yes. Yes. And where I was completely misled and the person had a different name and he had a living girlfriend and all of this. So very gun shy Vicky. Um, but so I, I met somebody else online. And you know, this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about this. The internet is a landmine of of 
there is too much we can know about people. You know, in the old days, you meet somebody, the only information you get is what they give you. Mm-hmm. Now you can go and you can research them and you can, and you know what they're doing and you know who their friends are and why is that picture there and who is that? And I don't want all that information. I want it to be really simple. But can or, you, you, or you see, see a picture and you're like, so tell me about Cindy. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. And you know what? It's none of my business. Right. So can you restrain yourself from okay. doing too much research? Well, this is the problem. First of all, I just got burned. Right. So my guard is up. Second of all, you can't unknow something. Okay. So even if you see something by accident or mistake, which let me tell you happens all the time in friendships, in business relationships, you can't not see things when they pop up on your screen. So once you see them, once you read them, oh my God. So in any case, um, you know, this is a brand, you know, this is very, very new and, and there's no expectations at all. And it's it's been for the most part, no, for the all, it's been lovely. And um, I am not putting any stock into, I'm not making it anything that it's not. I have no idea what it is. Well, I have very unrealistic expectations about your love life. (laughs) I really want this to work out. Well, he's really lovely. Okay, but the thing is, there's lots of issues. Oh, this little thing like age, there's just this little tiny, my hands are spread across the room discrepancy and um it's the new way not the old way i'm the old one but anyway i tend to go that way i had to tell my kids by the way you know I'm, I'm dating somebody and he's very young not harry young my son is 23 but um anyway so we're getting way off topic so what, what my point is though that i had no expectation i i'm not even going to see the guy till next week you know it's very you know loose and everything so i had no expectation i did not i i was not going to buy a card or send anything mushy or do anything because Mm -hmm. you know this is and so you know I got like at the beginning of the day you know a a text and wishing me a happy Valentine's Day and everything and that was fine and but you know he said "I, I hope this is a really productive day with a kiss and I was like well, that's not very romantic. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope this is a really productive day. But in a way, it's lovely because we have very busy lives and busy careers and everything. So here's my point. I had a decision at that point. Do I want to be sad that I don't have a Valentine to be with, to, that there are no words? I'm not getting poetry, although a certain someone that is just lovely in my life that comes around perennial did send me some beautiful poetry yesterday um but do do i choose to be sad because i'm not going out to dinner i'm not getting candy i'm not getting a card i'm not getting flowers i'm not going on a date i'm not even going to see this person um i'm not talking to him on the even on the phone um or do i choose to be happy and grateful that there's somebody that's nice in my life and that this exists and so i decided to have fun with it and be playful and I decided to make it a Valentine's Day that he'll never forget. And so... You got uh, naked and put a guitar on. Well, it's... That's exactly it, what I, I was thinking. Well, I didn't exactly... Um, the sec- Well, so I Uh-oh, have... I have, I have this whole photo series that I did some years ago that I'm very glad that I Boudoir. did. Boudoir? Well... Not exactly. I was in the bathroom. But ah. I did I did do it with my Mac. But anyway, I do this whole thing and I start out with all of this stuff going on. And 
I didn't show anything that you wouldn't see at the beach. Let's put it that way. I didn't, but um, the photos are very provocative, just mostly by my attitude and my stance and my facial expression and all of that kind of stuff. And so throughout the day, I just was sending him, but I was also orchestrating what he should be listening to while he was looking at the pictures. So I sent you know, songs. So it was a slideshow. So he had, yeah, so he had to like play the song and I, I started it by sending him um, Natalie Wood is Gypsy Rose Lee uh, doing her strip and Let Me Entertain You to warm him up. And so throughout the day I just sent these these photographs and like I said, 90% of them I was completely dressed and then there was just little reveal but little I mean you know like yeah you could go to the beach and see more this is a very productive day and and so and and but what ended up happening was it was so much fun for me to do that and I had it in my head all day and I believe it was so much fun for him to be receiving it and so at one point in his day, he was with children, and I, I, I said, can you hide your screen? And I probably sent the most provocative of all the pictures then, because I thought that would be fun. And because, yeah, he hit his he screen. He wasn't with his wife no. also, was he? Oh, God, I okay. hope not. Just but anyway, my point is, I'll try to get back to this again. <laughs> I chose to be happy. I chose to be grateful. And I chose to have fun. And so I had a lovely Valentine's Day. And I think I made it a lovely Valentine's Day for him. And that's a choice we have every day with everything. I like that. Right? Mm-hmm. So on my on my drive over here, something else was on my mind. And I was kind of upset. And I was kind of spinning. And I was kind of obsessing. And I thought, wait a minute. Look at that sky. I don't know if you guys saw the sunset tonight. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It was magnificent. And I thought, what if I just focus on that for a moment? What Mm -hmm. if I just think how grateful I am to be in L.A. and to have this in front of me? How lucky we are to be alive right now. How lucky we are to be alive right now. I've been trying to get tickets for Harry to go to Hamilton when we're in New York. (laughs) So far, I'm not scoring. I'm trying. Keep trying. Anyway, so... That kind of brings me to tonight's guest. Okay. Because, and tonight's show, because I have to be, I'm so grateful that I get to do this. And I'm so grateful to you, Louise, for enabling me to do this. And for you, John, for coming out and doing this with us. And I love, I keep banging, you guys are hearing noises because I'm banging into the microphone. I'm sorry. You're just excited. I'm excited. I am because I'm happy because I'm choosing to be happy and I'm grateful. And the fact that we are in L.A. and we get to do things. I went to a, to a, to a screening of Manchester by the Sea two nights ago and I got there early and I was in the front row and Matt Damon and Casey Affleck were sitting closer to me than you guys are right now and I got to go up to Casey Affleck afterwards and hand him my book and he took my phone out of my hand took a selfie of us gave me a hug had conversation with me Um, this doesn't happen anywhere else oh and I got to tell you this this is just unbelievable because of where we are and the union that I'm in I'm in SAG-AFTRA I get these invitations to things. And so I got one when I was at the doctor's office last week, and it said something about trolls. And I'm like, I don't care about animated features. And then I saw something about Justin Timberlake, and I was like, oh, Harry loves to wait. And then I got called into the thing, and I didn't have the, the Wi-Fi password, and she's giving it to me, and I'm being rushed. And I forget about it. I get in the car, and I drive all the way across town to my next appointment. And I think, wait, I think I saw something about Justin Timberlake, because Harry, my son, 22 years old, his heroes all through growing up 
were um, Justin Timberlake and Derek Jeter. Those were his two heroes. And Derek just retired, but we were there when Derek hit his 3,000th hit. We were there for that. And and Harry did get to see Justin in concert a couple years ago. He paid for nosebleeds and you know sat all the way up there. And I go to look at the invitation, and it's an invitation for a screening of Trolls, and Justin Timberlake is going to do the Q&A. I now, saw Harry on Facebook going mental. Okay, so now I know <laughs> that a lot of these with the really big stars, like last night for Casey Affleck and Matt Damon the other night, no guests. So I'm like, I can't breathe. I'm like, oh my God, I waited a whole hour to come over here. Is it? Are there still tickets? Yes, there's still tickets. Can I bring a guest? Yes, I can bring a guest. <laughs> so now I'm now they're asking for like my social security number and my ID number, and I'm like, they never do that. And I'm like putting in all this stuff, and I'm in the car, and I'm literally like shaking. I'm like, I have to get, and. When I got the confirmation that I got these tickets, as a as parent, you're both parent. No, Louise, well, Louise, you're a parent to many children. <laughs> I started to do the happy dance yeah. in the car, and the tears are rolling down my face because I am now going to make my son's life worth living. And you did. <laughs> and I did, right? Yeah. And we get to go tomorrow to that. Oh, wow. And so... This is something that only happens because we live in Los Angeles mm -hmm. or in New York. You know, th this is just extraordinary that these things happen. So doing this show is extraordinary mm -hmm. that we get to do these guests. And, and sometimes we have to do it on the phone and that ruins John's life. <laughs> and it's a nightmare um, for this for for sound engineering. But tonight we're blessed because tonight we have a guest in the studio and we have Shadow Stevens. Shadow is an artist, a writer, a producer, actor, motivational speaker, announcer, and award-winning radio personality. Louise, we are going to have so much to talk about with your past. I'm so excited about yes. this. And it says it's due to an overactor, <laughs> overactive adrenal gland and mm. a chemical imbalance. Uh, That's how he yeah. got all that done. We're going to talk about that, too, because I have a severe chemical imbalance if you put marijuana in me oh. very strange things happen so we just uh, haven't done that for a long time anyway shadow's been the host of the most successful and wildly syndicated no not wildly widely syndicated wildly would be well also with him with shadow i'm sure there was a lot of wildness in it mm -hmm. but um the most widely syndicated radio show in the world american top 40 Broadcast in 120 countries to an estimated 1 billion listeners a week. Now, how do we get those? Come on, John, Louise. How do we get those numbers? You have Come to on. inherit a show from Casey Kasem. I, well, I, well, I think maybe Shadow can help, like, shed some light on how we yes, can. Yes, uh, Shadow can. Shadow can take the shadow can, off of us right. and shed the light shadow upon us. Shadow sheds light is <laughs> his new catchphrase. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and he has one of the most recognized voices in the world. Oh, he does. He yes. is currently the voice of Antenna TV Network and the new Craig Ferguson series for the History Channel, Join or Die. I love Craig. He, yeah, and yeah. he was the voice of Ferguson's The Late Late Show, yes. as a matter of fact. Yes. He's voiced countless commercials for television and radio. As an actor, he's appeared on Baywatch, The Larry Sanders Show, we're going to have to talk about Gary, and Beverly Hills 90210. Shadow was the star of two network series for CBS and spent four years on Dave's World and two different versions of Hollywood Squares. He created Shadow Vision for HBO and is currently working on his Blackout Television, which is coming soon to TV, which is like an improvisational show using uh, African-American people. 
I don't know why Shadow is the one. To, Shadow is not African-American, but that's it. We could talk about that, too. Utilizing his art background, he has a degree in art, and this is craziness that he he doesn't know that I know this, uh, but we both went to the University of Arizona, which is crazy. He went to another school, too. We weren't there at exactly the same time, but that's fun. Um, so utilizing his art background, Shadow has also created huge branding and marketing campaigns, and he created Sammy Hagar's Cabo Waba, Cabo Wa, I can't say it. Cabo. Cabo yes, Cabo. Say it again. Cabo Wabo. Cabo Wabo. I, I, I can't say. Cabo yeah, Wabo like, Radio. Like Cabo. Cabo. Cabo Wabo. Yeah. Cabo Wabo Radio. Cabo Wabo Radio. It's like the Baba when Gilda Radna used to do we'll Baba ask him Wabo. to pronounce yeah. it correctly. The Cabo Wabo Radio. Um, so he created that for Sammy Hagar. So that's crazy. He He's like so multifaceted. He's won Clio Awards, the Big Apple Award for Advertising, and the Billboard Magazine Radio Personality of the Year Award. Wow. He's created and launched the most successful rock station in the country, world famous KROQFM. K Rock. Yep. K Rock in Los Angeles. I didn't know he created K Rock. That's kind of crazy. And KMET, also in Los Angeles, which was the most successful album oriented rock station in the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. I loved radio in the 70s and 80s. It's, you know, Little Stevens Underground Garage touches on it, but radio back then, wow. A multimedia artist, he's also written five children's books. Wow. I'm exhausted just reading his bio, let alone living and making all of that stuff happen. But I'm so looking forward to jumping in. So, Louise, John, let's welcome Shadow Stevens. Hi, Shadow. Yeah, sure. (laughs) As we say in North Dakota, (laughs) along with the cattle and the wheat and the folks that can't be beat, I tell you, things are looking good now. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, so... I learned a long time ago that you know how to speak mock Norwegian. Did you really? Why? It's very simple. Like you say, I took this moment to walk across the road. I took in this moment to walk across the road. It's an in and a sk with a lilt. I'm yeah. taking this moment to walking across the road. <laughs> okay, that's very easy for you to say, but I, I, I would, it would take hours of practice for me to get one, one line out of that. Duduve, duduve. You remember okay. duduve, the duv, that that short film that uh, was, um, oh, it was many years ago, and it was called the Dove. No. And it was a parody of um, that famous Swedish um, director. Um, Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know in why it, I just called they Ingmar talk Bergman. like that. Yeah, I'm not going down there, down to Tomsk. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's the best thing I ever heard in my life. And of course, being Norwegian, I had to, ah. uh, you know, add the lilt, add the skir. I see. So you have the skir and the and, and the lilt. And okay, so while we're talking skir. about being Norwegian and 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 back then, how how did this uh, shadow name come to your mother? Did not your mama did not name you Shadow? Did she? God. God, name, God, named God me this. and how did that and and how did that come to you that God was naming you Shadow? Well, you have, to, I guess you have to back up to the beginning because I yes, was let's. I was a radio fanatic when I was ten years old. Mm. My uncle gave me a a kit a, a called a, a night kit, and I was good at following instructions. So I built this broadcaster. It wow. would allow me to broadcast a radio signal from a bedroom into another room. And I thought, this is magic. <laughs> where, so where, I went where, down wait, to wait, the, wait, where were you? Where, in where, Jamestown, North Dakota. Okay. I grew up in, I'm the oldest of a family of five. Mm-hmm. 
my parents owned um, clothing stores and toy stores and go-kart tracks and wow, fireworks stands on their 4th of July. I had a magical <gasps> childhood. It was amazing. And when did this voice... Um, I assume you didn't know you had this voice when you were little. No, like, no like... all I had was enthusiasm. <laughs> it's all I still have is no. enthusiasm. You've got a great... You, your voice is amazing. Did the voice come after... Pu- of course it came after puberty. It but... didn't. I didn't really find myself until I got to Boston. Now, I went from Jamestown, you know, and, and I built this radio station, and mm-hmm. I had a little pirate radio station playing rock and roll, and you could hear it about a mile in every direction. I put up an antenna from the top of my third third story of my house to mm-hmm. the top of, a, of an evergreen tree, and we could hear the station for about a mile. Wow. And they discovered Were people me. listening? Yeah, they were, and it surprised me because I had a contest once. And the contest was uh, name the, the secret neighbor. So I'd gone to a neighbor and, and I'd interviewed the neighbor and, and then I, re, I played the recording. Uh-huh. And so if you can name the secret neighbor, call us and win. I didn't know what because I didn't think anybody was listening. It was just because I thought it was really fun. Uh-huh. And so my, uh, my friend was over there with me and someone called and they knew the name. Wow. And you were right. It's Mrs. Wheeler. <laughs> Um, but I didn't know what to give them, and I panicked. And I said, "Well, I got to go back on the air now. Let me give you to Keith." And then Keith takes over the phone call, and then he says, and he keeps talking, and then he comes back and he says, "No, I got to get back over and uh, go on the air. So let me give you back." So he gives me back up, and, and I say, "Well, you know, we have a uh, you know a large collection of comic books, and you're welcome to come by and pick anyone, <laughs> anyone you want." It was humiliating. Anyway, so they they discovered me on a local station mm-hmm. uh, and put me on the air because they they said what do you you know he said what do you like and I said well I like art you know I do art and I and I uh, do and I like radio mm-hmm. radio really and I tell him about my little station and he mm-hmm. goes oh well, you should come down and see us so he puts me on the air as the world's youngest disc jockey how old are you I was eleven wow and so I did that every Saturday morning and talked about what was happening. At the schools and what was happening, you know, in rock and roll and what was at the top of the charts and and so what and was, what was, what was your music adorable? What was the music that you loved back then? All rock and roll. It okay. was, you know, it was all like Little Richard and mm-hmm. Chuck Berry and mostly black music, ironically, mm-hmm. and um, and it, and I and I loved doing it. And then while I was in high school, I started um, painting monster T-shirts in a mall. And I would, you know, do like the Big Daddy Roth and the uh, Mouse was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I would copy them until I learned how to do it myself. And then I would just sit there in the mall and then paint these monster uh, shirts and uh, and sell them and make money. But radio ah, kept see, beckoning. See, Shadow's already enterprising. 11 years old, the guy's already making money from his art. Well, that was the one thing my dad taught me was, you know, he put me to work early in the toy store. You know, mm-hmm. back, you know, when I was eight years old, I was be, you know, unpacking boxes and putting them on shelves and putting prices on them and so on. And, and it was... Um, you know, it was magical. It was, well, know. but a lot of us have made money from having doing that kind of work. But the fact that you were making T-shirts, that you were using your art and making money, that's a whole different deal. And being enterprising as a kid, so you were already setting the groundwork that you were going to make money with your art. I like this. Okay. Well, I thought, that's what I thought I wanted to do. Radio was something I loved. Mm. And, and it provided a – and I went back to that station and worked weekends and vacation relief all through high school. And then when I went to college at the University of North Dakota, I got a full-time job uh, doing a, a radio show at night. So I went to school during the daytime. And was at it night the college going, station? Or no, no, it was, uh-huh. a, it was a, a regular station in 
and then I would work until one in the morning and then go out and have coffee until three and go home and go to sleep and then go to class. Okay, so wait, this is an important part of your career. How, how did that happen? How did you get that gig? How did you think to get that gig? I applied. I, just, I went in. You know, I had a lot of enthusiasm. And you know, because, I, I had this background. I, right. done, I knew how to run a board, and mm-hmm. I'd been doing radio shows for years mm-hmm. at, in Jamestown. And so they, uh, they hired me, and, and I was terrible. I, I have tapes of that. What, how I could so? play those for you. You'd go, <laughs> oh, God, this poor kid. How, <laughs> I just terrible how so? Myself. Oh, just terrible. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. It was really just terrible. I was trying to copy like guys from back east that, like, you know, I'd, I'd get records of uh, of the big time guys, Jerry Blavitt and B. Mitchell Reed, and these guys that were really fabulous. And I'd try to copy them, and I couldn't. And and then the broadcast uh, equipment was really second rate, so it didn't support my doing a professional sounding anything. Mm-hmm. So in my let's see, third year of college, I got a job at uh, in Fargo, and every day I would drive to Fargo from Grand Forks, and it was about eighty miles each way. So I'd go to school in the daytime, and then I'd drive down there, and I'd work until one, and then I'd drive back home, and then I'd I'd uh, go to school the next day, and and then I got a job. And so at, uh, uh, there Arizona. again, you're making money doing what you love to do. So right off the bat, you're making money. Yeah, being a yeah. DJ. Yeah, it, it, but I was an art major. Interestingly enough, I thought what I wanted to do was to be an illustrator, or or do comic book art or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but at that time, there wasn't any way to really make a real living doing it. But it's what I loved, and this was a means to getting there. So in my fourth year of college, I moved to the University of Arizona. I went to the University of Arizona. Did you? I did. I loved Tucson. Me too. I, and being there for me was like being in the big time. Mm. I got there and Speedway Boulevard, and <laughs> driving my car down. It's like you know, the sun, the top down, and oh man, it was. From North Dakota, because I always wanted to move to California. <laughs> Me too. But when I when I was brought out here in my senior year of high school, I knew that everyone in California was cool, and they all knew that I wasn't. <laughs> and so I, I was totally horrified. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of coming out, and you know, I was accepted at Art Center School and at San Diego State, mm-hmm. and I never mentioned it again. I went back to the University of North Dakota and fell right in with my old guys from high school and mm-hmm. Joined a fraternity and uh, tried to have a little family atmosphere and went to work. But then I uh, got to the University of Arizona. So then I was like ready. I was psychologically ready. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful campus. Oh, God. It's, you know, it's not anymore. My, I took my, my kids my, for my son to look at it about five years ago. And I was telling them all this nostalgic stuff. I, I graduated in um, 77. So I'm telling them all this nostalgic stuff about how gorgeous the campus. The campus looked like hell. It, no. Everything was dead because there's no... It's wa- just have been a bad year. Well, I don't it know. It was really green when I was there. Well, it was, it was fabulous. It was dead. Every Everything in Tucson was dead when yeah. we were there. And the old house that I lived in in 1977 was now... It was decrepit then. Now it was 
condemned. I mean, Clearly. it was horrible. So they were not impressed with Tucson. <laughs> and I was telling them like how beautiful it was, like an you know, oasis in the desert, and they weren't buying any of it. And you didn't you take them out to um, what Sabino Canyon? And you know, I yeah, no, I didn't. Um, but I love Sabino Canyon. I actually taught at Sabino Canyon High School. My student teaching. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> so all right. So I didn't know what I was getting into here. <laughs> all right. So you're in you're in you're in Tucson, and you're you're doing. So now I'm a, an art a, a um, uh, drama major. Drama and journalism. I was in the I drama realized department. I wanted to go into the drama. Into, I had to what learn was his to name? Perform. Uh, Mr. Maroney or Thank Dr. You. Maroney. Yes, Mr. Maroney. Oh my God! Yeah, and he was, uh, and he was terrific. And he, you know, but I'm going to. I'm working full time, mm-hmm. and I'm doing Wait, really you, well. You're working full time doing radio. Okay. And, wow. And it was a hot radio station, and I was, you know, uh, getting pretty well known, and and so that was where my attention was. But now I'm at the University of Arizona, and now uh, uh, the guy in the um, at the radio station was head of the news department, Roger Galloway. Mm-hmm. And Roger was a, a theater major. Mm-hmm. And he was way ahead of me. And he wanted to go out and try out for the biggest play of the year, After the Fall, the Arthur Miller play. Mm-hmm. And so I can go, yeah, I'll go with you. And you watch the tryouts and all that. And so he's going to audition. And, and he does. He auditions and all these people were there. And, they were, and some were really good. And I was really impressed. And and Mr. Maroney says, is there anybody else who wants to uh, try out for the lead? And Roger raises my hand. He goes back here. I go, what, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, oh, you can do this. All you have to do, you can read. You know how to read. Just go ahead and read. Went, no, no. <sighs> so, yeah, I'll yeah, come down. And they all have me. And I walk down the aisle. And I read the thing. And they give it to me. Wow. And I'm going, what? And what? No, I have to learn all of this stuff, you know, and it's like one of the longest plays in the English language. <laughs> I'm going to school full time and I'm having to like step up big time. Mm-hmm. And and it came off really well. But then. Irene Comer. Remember Irene Comer? I do remember yes, that Yes, Leap name. Shuffle Ball Chain. She, t- she taught us how to tap dance. Oh, my God. <laughs> I forgot that name. Jeez. She was like 90 million years old then. She, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And had been there a long time when yeah. I was there. Uh, so I was in an experimental um, theater class, and they insisted, they made me uh, do this play called Blood Knot. It's a two, two-person two play, and we had to put it on, and this is right after After the Fall. It ended, and then the play started rehearsing the next Monday, and it had to be put on in something like two weeks. Mm-hmm. A full play, two characters, mm-hmm. have to memorize all those lines. <laughs> I really tried. I really tried. Mm. So did the other guys. It's mm. me and a black guy. And I hated the play. I hated the characters. Mm. I hated everything about it. I didn't want to do it. And I was really trying to remember. So I couldn't. And I go to Mr. Maroney and I say, we need another week. If we have another week, we can really get this down. He goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the play must go on. You know, there's no putting off a play. You've got to show up. You've got to make it work. So it occurred to me that since it's an experimental theater class, <laughs> anything could go. So let's record the whole play at the radio station and play it back and mouth the words. Oh, my God. This seemed like a good idea <laughs> at the time. <laughs> oh, my God. It was the most horrifying experience of my life. I've never been more humiliated. Oh. We've we put this play on, and we have the speakers on the other side of the uh, of the other thing, and, and we barely know the words anyway. 
So every beat was off. Every oh, line was off. We were oh. just like, and people were leaving the theater. Oh. And in the end, I think there were about seven people who stayed through the whole horrifying experience. <laughs> and, and it was like, okay, I'm exhausted. It's done. But there was another night to do it. Oh, my God. And he wouldn't let us do it that way again. So we did the <gasps> second night with books. Oh. oh. It was 100 years long. It oh. lasted a hundred years. Oh my god! I am God. I am at a least twenty years longer older than I am today <laughs> because of that experience. Oh my god! <laughs> it was just awful, and that's when I realized that life was an, an infinite series of humiliating moments, indefinitely <laughs> prolonged, and anything that wasn't humiliating was just a breather to prepare you for some future humiliation you were about to experience at any moment. Stay on your toes. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, so so you you oh god, so you get through it. Obviously. So I get through it, and now this is um, this is my second year. So I'm in my fifth year of college in in the drama department. When um, no, that was in the fourth, and then I I um, got through that year, and then the fifth year started, and in my uh, second semester, I got a job in Boston. And so I had to leave Arizona, and I got married to my high school girlfriend, and we had a uh, son, and uh, I was off to Boston. So now I'm on my way to Boston to be a big-time radio personality. I didn't want to go to Boston. I didn't want to go to any place that was cold. Mm. I didn't want any snow. I mm-hmm. had had enough snow to last several lifetimes. And now how'd I'm you get like, the Boston gig? You had I was apply for I was it, applying no? all over California, oh, uh-huh. San Diego, uh-huh. San Francisco. You know, mm-hmm. I never imagined I could get to L.A. And so the so uh, you were applying while you were still in college and you hadn't finished, but you decided you were ready to go. You were done. Well, I now I now I was married and I had a child, and mm-hmm. I had to start thinking of how to make more money and mm-hmm. how to you know further my career. Mm-hmm. I decided, you know, that that I I was going to be in media now. That that was going to be a way for me to probably make, you know, a better income than I would. Did as an you artist. have this voice at that point? Did you have this radio voice then? Yeah, my, my but my style and my um, professionalism didn't really gel until I got to Boston. But the story of getting to Boston is 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 a saga in itself because up until that time I had um, used a name that I made up. Um, called Jefferson K, like taking K from Murray the K, and Jefferson oh. seemed like a good soulful name, so I was <laughs> going to be Jefferson K. So I was that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm on my way to Boston, and I stop, in, and this is all true. This is like, it sounds like uh, a Marvel comic kind of story, but <laughs> I stop in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Across the street, it says atomic testing range, no entering, and uh, danger. And I'm at a phone booth, and it's high noon. And I call Boston. I tell uh, Mel, yeah, yeah, I'm on my way to Boston. Uh, I'm in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And uh, I'm on my way and uh, should be there in a couple of days. And he goes, oh, that's great. You know, uh, by the way, we're, uh, you, can't, you can't use the name Jefferson K. We've got a J.J. Uh, Jeffries on the station. There's a Jess Kane in town. And interestingly enough, there was a guy who called himself Jefferson K-A-Y-E, mm-hmm. Jefferson K, who was here for a number of years. So that name is just not going to work. We're, we're th- thinking of calling you a new name. And Drake, down Drake, Bill Drake was the god of radio. Mm. He was the most successful man in radio. He created KHJ and all of the incarnations of all of that, that top 40 format that continues today on like K-Earth is, mm-hmm. that, is that format, basically. 
And it was a, a, a genius format mm-hmm. that gave real structure to uh, to broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Bill said, yeah, he wants to call you Shadow Man or Shadow Lane. And uh, that was the stupidest name I ever heard in my life. I was horrified. So no, 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 <laughs> no. Well, hey, look, uh, I will be there in a couple of days, and I will start thinking, and I'll come in with some, uh, you know, possible names. Uh, by the time I get there, I'll have something we can suggest and talk about. So now I'm driving helter skelter across country, 100 miles an hour in my Corvette. <laughs> you know, thinking Rodney Rhodes, Ray Santa Fe. You know, I'm looking for names and billboards and on stop signs. <laughs> And I, by the time I get there, I have a little notebook with a bunch of different names. And I'm driving into Boston by myself. And, I hear, and I'm listening to the station. Mm-hmm. And starting Monday on WRKO, Shadow Stevens, 68 WRKO, I was horrified. It was like, oh, God, they named me that. <laughs> Holy <laughs> Jesus. And, and now I'm into Boston. I'd left you know, Arizona and it was sunshine and warm and people were nice. You go into the Circle K and they go, good morning. How are you? You want a cup of coffee? Oh, fine. Here it is. You get to Boston and you stop at any cafe and they go, what do you want? You want coffee? Regular? I was like, God damn. So then I get lost and I'm lost for hours on end and nobody in Boston knows how to tell you to get anywhere. And I mean, today you can get around because there is you have a GPS, you know, GPS yeah. but yeah. at that time mm-hmm. you were lost for hours. Now I'm lost in, in South Boston and in ghetto areas and, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm out of my mind is stress and I can't, I can't find anybody and you could pull up you can you tell me where this gas station? Nah, no, I'm new here. Everybody was just new there. You know, they couldn't tell you anything. And there were no gas stations anywhere, anyway. Not in any part of Boston proper. Wow. And so if you ran out of gas, you're in big trouble. And everything's in rotors. And I was just in this nightmare of, mm-hmm. of a place. But I was in a structured situation where, with real pros who were really good, mm-hmm. and I had to rise to the occasion. And I would get memos that would be like, after listening to this station all day long and having my mind blown by one great personality after another, then you came on. <laughs> if you think you can stick around here sounding like that, you're in for a bit of a surprise. Oh, if you my. don't pull it together, you're going to find yourself back in Des Moines. And this is like before going on the air. Wow. So now I'm, I'm out of my mind with stress and resentment, and I hate this place mm-hmm. anyway. And and then the ratings came out. And they were, they were the highest ratings in the history of Boston. And wow. everybody, the whole station was rocking. They owned, it's like 36 or 38% of people listening to radio were listening to WRKO. And there I was at the highest the highest ratings. Wow. <laughs> and, and everything was just great then it's like oh you're doing a great job you know it's like everything <laughs> so in the, but all i could think of is i gotta get out of here it's, it's snow and this and this weather and this anger. and you've got and you've got this voice now yeah you've... no i i'd figured it out you uh-huh. know and, and and so i got pretty good at doing that mm-hmm. and and then i started sending out as a hobby um these uh audition tapes mm-hmm. and um and I was, I was writing the Boston Book of the Dead. And every day I would write something else that happened to me that I hated <laughs> and why I wanted to make sure that I never found myself back here. Here is another reminder of why you don't want to be here. <laughs> so I, I was young and I was, you know, I was having to grow up and, I, and 
years later, I went back to Boston and actually quite liked it. But mm. at that time, at that moment in mm. time, mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to get away. Mm. So I write the last book of the Boston Book of the Dead. And the next morning, I get a call from KHJ in Los Angeles. And the guy says, uh, we're thinking of um, talking. We want to talk to you about coming out here and joining us. And you've done great in Boston. And uh, we'd like to put you on a plane tomorrow. What? Wait, Tomorrow. How long are you in Bo- How long were you doing the Boston thing? A year. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, the next day, I was on a plane. Wow. And I landed in Los Angeles, and I went to the Sunset Hyatt House where they put me up. And there I was, up on the twentieth floor, looking out over the expanse and going, "I can't even believe this." I have a talk with them the next day. It goes great. This is too good to be true. It's the number one station, maybe in the country, or number two, maybe you know, the top station in Los Angeles mm-hmm. by far. And they um, and they put me on a plane going back. That was like that was like Monday. I land, meet with them Tuesday, get on a plane Wednesday, um, arrange, do my last show on Thursday. A truck arrives at my uh, condo on Friday. Pack up everything I own and the car in the truck. Take us off. Take a taxi to the airport. And by Saturday night, I was living in Los Angeles. Wow. It all happened. Just bing, 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 bing. Wow. Like it, was, it was crazy. So then that started, and I was the full-time relief guy at KHJ. And my, my deal was that I would get the next full-time job that would open up at uh, KHJ. And by the mean, meanwhile, I was hired um, to be the sidekick to... Um, Steve, uh, Steve Allen mm-hmm. on, on his television show. And so I was his Ed McMahon sidekick mm-hmm. um, announcer. And I go in and I'm out of my mind. I'm like, um, remember broadcast news where he was sweating? Yeah. That was me. It was me for real. And, the, and, and during the breaks, the, the makeup girls would come over and pat me down. Like, Boy, you really sweat. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of my mind. I'm here with Steve Allen, who's a genius. Oh, my and God. And I don't even know how I fit in. I don't I know how to say, and now, Steve Allen. It's like, what? So that um, is is quite a successful moment in time. And, uh, and they fire a guy at KHJ, and I'm supposed to get that job. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited, except that they say, they call me in and they say, well, you know, we're not going to give that to you. Um, but, uh, you, you know, Drake doesn't know whether you want to be on television or radio. Okay. Are, you out of, are, we, are you out of your mind? Why wouldn't I be on television and radio? It's mm-hmm. like television supports radio, radio supports television. It's like, well, you know, that's not the way he sees it. I said, I'll tell you what, I will stay here. You don't have to pay me anymore. Just put it in my contract in writing that I'll get the next full-time job. Oh, no, we can't do that. So I quit. So I would rather take a chance that I may fail, mm-hmm. but I fail on my own and not at the whims of people like you. Wow. And uh, How old are you? You're, you're young still, yeah? Yeah, no, I was um, maybe 24. Let's see, three or four. Pretty ballsy move. Yeah, I well, you know, I just had to do what what was right, mm-hmm. and I was, and then I was offered a job at KRLA, their competition, their their big competition in LA, and it was for more money, and it was full time, and it was afternoon drive, which was the big the big time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm there, and within, I think three months or so. I had suggested that they start playing album music because mm-hmm. 
it's what everybody was listening what, what to. Year, what year is this? This is like uh, 1970. Mm. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Right, see. I went to Boston in 69, then I went to uh, KHJ in 70, and I was only there six months. And then I was hired at KRLA, and they made me program director. And wow. now I was, I was happy. I was working full-time. I was on the IR, and I was going to art center school at night. Wow. And, um, and they made me program director. And I'm sitting in an anatomy class one day, and I w- couldn't concentrate. And I turned to the person next to me, and you ever feel like you're going insane? And they looked at me like puzzled. <laughs> I, I got to get out of here. I went and sat in my car, and I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. I'd never been a program director before. I had to figure out what's good about radio, what mm-hmm. what makes it great, in every all the ins and outs, all the details. And so I set out to do that and created a truly great radio station. It was remarkable. Mm-hmm. It was theater of the mind. It mm-hmm. was great radio personalities. And we beat KHJ the first time in, I don't know, eight years or something. Wow. And um, and on the on the heels of that, now this is maybe a year later or so. Um, they um, they started taking credit for all the success we were having, and starting to make me do things, such as. Well, they insisted. We did one of the great radio promotions in the history of radio. I have to tell you this. KHJ had come on and and done. A promotion called Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar had, first, had just come out, mm-hmm. so they used all that music. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. It's the KHJ Superstar Contest. I thought it was almost blasphemous. It was like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding! It's like that is so crass. So we came up with the great. I came up with mm-hmm. the great KRLA Soup or Star Contest. <laughs> Eight stars are floating in the KRLA Soup. <laughs> Name the star and the soup they're floating in and win $10,000 in cash. And so then, then you had all of these little sounds of, and it was like... What's the soup? It was bean or bacon, beef and barley, <laughs> split pea, <laughs> tomato. <laughs> and so you had, you had all this production saying, Hosanna, superstar, Hosanna, superstar. And people on the phone going, uh, Bean and bacon, uh, Tommy Smothers. Uh, <laughs> it was so funny to listen to. And if they lost, they would win $100 and, and um, a can of split pea, bean and bacon, or beef and barley soup. Oh, and if you won the big prize, you'd win $10,000 and a can of the soup of your choice. <laughs> so it was really funny. And everybody uh-huh. in town was listening to it. And then they, they wanted to make me do other stuff that I knew wouldn't work. Mm. And I'd be blamed. And the, and the ratings would go down. So I quit. And my and my res- resignation was a piece of art, a little, a little picture of this guy with this aged face, with these wrinkles everywhere, <laughs> and his scraggly hair with <laughs> wings, and he's flying out of the void. And it said, "Last night I had a vision, and the vision spoke unto me, saying, quit, my child. There's no hope.'" And so this is my resignation. I still have this little piece of, of <laughs> art. It's like a pen and ink drawing, and um, I said, "I can't do this. You know, I cannot." do what you want me to do. So I'll just stay on as a personality, get somebody else, you know, let them take control, do what they what you need to do and um So you were quitting as as the station director, the, but you but you were staying on as the personality. Yeah, I was I, I think, had right. big ratings, you know, right, it was right. fine, it seemed. Right. So they bring in a new guy and he comes up with something called Future Rock, which 
I wasn't a great idea, but I didn't care because mm-hmm. I was happy. I was doing art and I was being paid and I was so, you know, supporting mm-hmm. my family. So one day, the new program director calls me in and he says, uh, I got to let you go. And I laughed. I had ratings. You know, it's like, every, mm-hmm. like this is radio. Like, come on. That's a joke, right? <laughs> he said, I'm serious. I go, um, why? He said, you're always walking around here smiling. I know you're cynical about what I'm doing. I went, what? You've got to be, ca- I'm the only one who's happy around here. I'm he trying fired to bring you for every- being happy? He, we talked about he, happiness. He, he smiled, <gasps> he fired me for smiling too much. Oh my God. And, and I talked to him for two hours. And at the end, I convinced him that he was wrong mm-hmm. and that I was just a happy person. Mm-hmm. And he said, I got to go with my original decision anyway. I'm sorry. So then wow. the accountant calls me in to his office and he's condescending. He looks down his long nose from behind his big desk and he says, I hope you go out and spend this check in the next two weeks. And then you don't know where your next penny is coming from. Oh my Maybe gosh. Maybe then you'll come to the meaning of life. I said, what? what's the meaning of life, Don? He goes, management is God. I went, oh, come, wow. please. He says, it's true? And he thumps his thumb, his finger on the desk. They put the food in your mouth, the, the roof over your head, management thump is thump, God thump. I went, I re- really feel sorry for you. Thank you. Goodbye. So then I left, and I didn't know where I was going to work, and I was kind of panicky at home. And then they called me back a couple of weeks later and hired me back for more money. Wow. I don't know wow. why, but clearly I had lost my passion <laughs> for being there. I was going to say, how do you go back to that situation? Well, well, you, do, well you do, because yeah, you, need to, the money. you need to support the yeah. family. But uh-huh. So then... Out of the blue comes a guy named Gary Bacosta. Gary had put together this new little awful radio station in the valley that couldn't be heard out of Burbank called K-Rock. And K-Rock AM was going to get an FM signal. And he wanted to hire me to come in and what he called do my magic and create something really original when they go on FM. Mm -hmm. And... um, I was reluctant because he, this, oh my God, he had spent money. They had a fleet of Datsun 240Zs for the news department and all this big name talent. They'd hired Charlie Tuna and all these guys Mm -hmm. who had been real big name personalities, paid them a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but you couldn't hear the signal anywhere out of Burbank. It was, it was the worst. Wow. And it didn't sound good on the air either, Mm -hmm. but he says, well, I can, I'll get you a car. What kind of car would you like? I went, um... Uh, how about a Porsche? He goes, fine. You got it. Pick one out. Well, I'm no fool. <laughs> so I got my Porsche and I went over there. And I went in and became one of the you know, disc jockeys there waiting for the time when there would be the big transition. And what happened was, now Gary had, had started it with 13 partners. He was a con man. And he had conned his grandfather and got him to invest a lot of money and a lot of um, a lot of politicians mm-hmm. and investors with money. Mm-hmm. And he'd spent this money wildly, and it was K-Rock. It was a big vision, and, and he was a big dreamer. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I was there, there was a hostile overthrow. Half the partners, the ones with money, 
decided that Gary was a con man and that he had conned them and he was spending all their money and it was going down in flames. So they fired him. They bolted his door and fired everyone who he'd hired recently, including me and a guy named Jimmy Rabbit. And um, so we're out of a job. And I call Gary. But you have your Porsche. I have my Porsche. (laughs) And I call Gary and Gary is a Sicilian. Pause. And he says, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Just I'll get back to you. We're, ta- we're dealing with this, and it'll be taken care of. So a few days go by. And, and someone's sleeping with the fishes. <gasps> almost. Oh, my. Almost. <laughs> um, there was a mysterious turn of events, and um, he was able to um, overthrow the coup and fire everyone who was a part of it. Uh, the partners, all of the programming people, all of the sales people, everybody in the office cleared out, moved me in with Jimmy Rabbit and a couple of other radio people and a couple of engineers and said, you're going to have to make this work. Okay. So I go in there. Now, the, during that short period of time, every day that I, I came to the station, I was uh, I walked in and walked out by a six-foot-four highway patrolman with a shotgun because they were concerned about vague threats to anyone who is a part of his team. Mm -hmm. And this went on for a period of time, and mysteriously, out of nowhere, the FCC granted him the FM license. Why? No one knows. I could tell you a story, but I'm not going to tell you it here. But... Uh, all of a sudden, it was we were taking over the station, mm-hmm. and it's up to me to go create the format, to move into the station, to sign it on the air, to design the studios, to do everything. Mm-hmm. And How well, so, and you're still a kid? You're still in your twenties? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was um, by this time. This is like 1973, mm-hmm. so I'm like mid twenties, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I did these pretty funny. And all this stuff is on my on my website, shadowradio.com. Uh, a lot of the background of this and some of the audio, the teasers and so on. And I went and designed the studio and, and the log and the format. The approach was really radical at the time. Mm-hmm. It was all up, all cutting edge rock all the time, mm-hmm. 24 hours a day. Now, at the time, people did day parting. Day parting was you would... Start the days a little gently because people were just waking up. And then the little ladies in the offices, you know, and in their mm-hmm. housewives don't want to be rocked too much during the daytime. <laughs> so we have that kind of soft rock mm-hmm. during the daytime. And then we start picking it up in the afternoon. And at nighttime, we get down and we do the real stuff with Led Zeppelin. And uh, ours was no. We're a party 24 hours a day. It's all up, all rock, all the time. And it's all new rock. And they go, well, what? How are people going to know what it is? Because it's if it's all new. I said, if they listen to us, it'll be familiar. Mm. So we discovered, we were the first to play. I mean, David Bowie and Queen. And, wow. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Adam Ant and, and the whole punk movement and all that started at K-Rock. And I went on the air and I think... The first thing, and I made this this jingle package. I'd done this big jingle package at KRLA, and it was everything you could ever want in radio and more. And it was this massive thing that I'd produced. 
And this one was done on a budget, but it was still the same idea. It was the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sings Ah, K-Rock, Ah, Mighty Rock, AM, FM, Stereo, (laughs) K-R-O-Q. It was huge with a huge pipe organ. It was (laughs) massive. (laughs) And so I I do the FCC sign-on, and from from this day forward, it will be known as K-R-O-Q AM 1520, K-R-O-Q FM 106.7 Pasadena. And then this giant organ, this thunderous thing Mm. comes on and I think the first song was Ballroom Blitz (laughs) and it was all going rocking from that minute on and how fabulous then then I you know I hired Flo and Eddie the Turtles Howard's a good friend of mine Howard's done done the road taken oh great yeah yeah well Howard is one of my favorite people and he and Mark were so funny Mm -hmm. so I was the first one to really put them on on the air and we did this this show and I produced the show and it was the idea was it was all party, so it would be a theme night, Mexican night or or a punk rock night or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and then it would be, you'd never hear more than 30 seconds of a song ever. <laughs> it was a change, 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 and then here, and then they'd have special guests, and it was, you know, Keith Moon was there and passed out in his chair, you know, and fell on the floor, and we all tried not to laugh, and, <laughs> and Ringo Starr came in, and, and Blondie, and I mean, the who's who of, of uh, New Rock. Uh, Albert Brooks was a, was a, wow. a guest. I mean, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. So we build this up, and then we go from zero ratings to like one of the top stations in L.A. in six months. It was, it was phenomenal. With no money, no anything. It was everybody in Los Angeles was listening to K-Rock. And they couldn't pay us. And everybody was going broke. Mm. And I was going broke. And we were living off credit cards. And then my car was repossessed in the middle of the night by Burley Chinaman. And I was being driven from Topanga Canyon to Pasadena every day by the music librarian in his Volkswagen. Mm. And I'm going and I'm showing up and all these guys, because we're huge, everywhere you go in Southern California, people are listening to the station and it's exciting and it's funny. And um, I couldn't take it. People were, you know, having their, you know, going bankrupt. Mm. And I finally said, I can't do this anymore. And I resigned. And then the note, the moment that I resigned, the entire staff resigned that same day. Mm. They said, if you're done, I'm done. And everyone quit on the same day. So now we're going to have the last big, great radio show. I planned this. Flo and Eddie were going to be mm-hmm. there, all these guest stars. And, and it was all planned. The music was going to be the greatest music in history. And it was like programmed out. And it was going to be fun. And we were all there drinking tequila and smoking grass. And, and, uh, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. And there we were in the middle of the afternoon and the thing was rocking and everybody in town was listening and they shut off the transmitter. <gasps> they shut it off. And we're like in limbo. <laughs> There's a knock on the door. A guy, the guy opens the door and it's the general manager that Gary had just hired. Mm. Now he'd been telling us stories how our money was coming from the Grand Cayman Islands and he'd bring people in and investors and he would make all these stories and every week was a different story. And this guy says, I want you out of the studio right now. And I walked over to him and I towered over him and I said, I want you to leave at this minute or something ugly is going to happen. I will leave when I get 
through with this. And he kind of shook and trembled and walked away, and I was shaking, and I didn't know whether to completely cry at that moment Mm -hmm. or beat him to death. And we cleared up the studio, and everybody said, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry, man. And I went up to my office and Mm -hmm. cried and fell apart and threw all the stuff in my car and and drove away and vowed never to be in radio again. (laughs) And so I started my production company on that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I started, you know, doing commercials, and and uh, I would do work enough to make some equip, to buy some equipment, a, a microphone, and uh, and a recorder, and a, you know, a few things, and and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and I vowed I'm done with radio for the rest of my life. You know, it's politics, and it's you know, unscrupulous people, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to play this game anymore. If I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to go for higher stakes. Well, then. Just as I have made up my mind, I get a phone call from KMET, and the program, or the general manager said, we were watching what you did over there, and it was really impressive. I'd like to talk to you about coming over here. So I, uh, I gotta pay the bill. So I go in and I talk to him, and he makes me an offer that's just too good to be true. And it's like, come over here. I can't make your program director right away. You gotta come in as a disc jockey for us and then I'll make the uh, appropriate change. And everything was always, you know, it wasn't like they're gonna be a big fanfare. We fired the guy who made K-Rock. No. So I had to go through that and then I, I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It was a great radio station and I hired great people. I had brother John was there and B. Mitchell Reed was there and Stephen Clean and Jimmy Rabbit and and um, and Mary Turner, the burner. It. And again, six months, bam, number one ratings. I still have the ratings because I knew I have to hold on to these because people will never believe how big these ratings are. They were the number one station in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And then something unexpected happened. He started making me do things that I knew weren't going to work. And Such as? Well, one of the things he wanted me to do, and the final, the final straw, mm-hmm. I'll tell you the final straw. And at the time, I was doing research like I wanted to do the first KMET film festival. Now there's a billion film festivals. At that time, there weren't any, but mm-hmm. we were going to be visionary. We were mm-hmm. going to do, you know, every year would be this great festival, and, and I had this big vision, and I was doing all the research myself. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he calls me in one day, and he said, um, I want you to terminate Brother John, Ace Young, and Joe Collins. Now, Brother John was probably one of the great human beings that God ever created. He was the voice of God. He did all of the production. He was in the news department, did the news. He did all the public affairs. He wrote it all. He did a, a show. He was, a, he was an ordained minister. Mm-hmm. And he um, did a show that I created called Heaven is in Your Mind. Mm-hmm. And um, That was a great song, and Heaven yeah, is in traffic. Your Mind. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, because he had done a, a show before that called Silhouette. Mm-hmm. And Silhouette was a widely syndicated uh, rock and uh, and faith Christian based kind of sh- show, and this was faith and um, and you know contemporary music and deep thoughts, and he really did sound like God. Hmm. So A, he's one of my best friends. B, he's the hardest working person I've ever known in my life. He was absolutely reliable and he did everything. Mm-hmm. Now we have Ace Young, who is an institution in Los Angeles. He's the head of the news department. He was loved by everyone. There was no reason. He was reliable. He was always there. Joe Collins was a good backup guy, and he was the music um, um, director. 
And I said, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to make me into you. I, I said, why? And he said, they're just not working out. I said, no, you're just not working out. I'm not going to do that. And um, I mean, you have to find somebody who will do your bidding like that, but it's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to crawl over that desk and beat him <laughs> with his with his marble name on his desk. <laughs> I've never been madder in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that ended it. Mm-hmm. Um, he took me up on it, and um, he made my secretary program director. Wow. And I went off to my studio and vowed never to be in radio again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and she stayed on there for the next eight or nine or ten years and uh, got all the accolades of, for how great KMET was. And it was a good station and continued to be a good station. But we had made it that. Mm-hmm. Even the uh, jingle, A Little Bit of Heaven, I wrote that. And, and it was performed by the Pointer Sisters mm-hmm. on my show. They came mm-hmm. in as my guest, and I said, well, you do it. Will you sing a jingle for me? And they said, sure, you got one? I went, yeah. It goes like this. A little bit of heaven, 94.7 KMET. And they go, oh, I love that, I love that. Mm-hmm. And they sang it in three-part harmony. Nice. And um, and then added the little twi- Tweedledee at the end, and they used it for the next 10 years. And I designed the billboard. Uh, the, the first billboard was a really complicated one that I hired my uh, art um, advisor at the University of North Dakota was this genius named Dr. Robert Nelson. And I had him design um, Hollywood as seen from Mulholland Drive in the year 2525. And it was this kind of metropolis-like future vision with rockets in the air and multiple layers and everything. It was fabulous. And we had these billboards all over town. And then the follow-up to that was, I want to make a billboard... Just big, block, bold, stupid, fluorescent letters and put them upside down. And he said, if you put them upside down, you can't read them. I went, yeah? Your point? <laughs> I was, well, if you, if you think it'll work. <laughs> so he, they did it and it became, you know, iconic. And, and there it was. And so that went on for the next 10 years too. And I went back to my little studio and did my commercials for years. And then Gary Bucosta comes back to me and said, we're putting K-Rock back on the air. We want you to come back and do the same thing again. Uh, no. I, but I tell you what, Gary, because I, w- I know you're not going to pay me, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I will, I will um, consult mm-hmm. and I'll do my best because I know you're not paying anybody and there won't be any way to control this thing. But I'll do my best to give it a structure and, and, a, and a brand. Mm-hmm. And I will do weekend programming myself, and I'll sell all the advertising and keep all the money. And he said, fine. So I did that until the end of the 70s, until almost 1980, Mm -hmm. and did quite well Mm -hmm. with it. But it was agony, because the worst worst studios in the history, these studios are luxurious. K-Rock studios were the worst. Mm -hmm. I would bring in my own machines and my own mic to have a halfway decent sound. I finally couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't do it. It's like, I can't do it. And um, and so I quit, and then they hired the second program director of the four that have been in K-Rock mm-hmm. through the whole history. Mm-hmm. There's only been four. And um, But about that time, I had been doing a radio, um, radio campaign for a lot of, um, like, the Greek theater and... Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, on all the, the rock concerts and record albums, and we did the, the Blues Brothers movie mm-hmm. and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the, their advertising campaigns. And, mm-hmm. and um, I'd been doing university stereo commercials, and then they treated me badly, so I quit defiantly. And I was hired by Federated. And Federated was coming to do their radio commercials. So I went in and we did some night and I worked and I did a lot of them and they were really quite funny. They, um, I did some of them with Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was a good friend of mine at that time. And we did commercials for uh, Federated and for a company called Big Ben's and a bunch of other things. I still have them. They're wonderful. Mm-hmm. He was so brilliant. And um, and then they were they wanted to um, they they weren't going to put their money in radio anymore. And I thought, oh, my God. This is my lifeblood. I need this. So I go to, to negotiate my next deal. And I sit there as he, um, in, in the big uh, conference room with the big screen TV, as he shows the then commercials, their television commercials, with the producer of the commercials in the room with me. It was me and the guy. And he for two hours, he showed them back, and he would break them down about how much he hated them hated them he was embarrassed by them and and he says finally after two hours he said don't you understand i want something simple and funny that makes people remember the name federated is that too much to ask and i raised my hand and i said how about this i'll go on and do a dan Aykroyd bassomatic pitch man a parody of a pitch man i'll talk fast and and be loud and at the end i'll say and federated smashes prices and i'll smash a television with a circus hammer Get it? And he went, it's good. It might work. He said, okay, how about this? If it works, will you give me creative control so I never do the same thing twice or people will want to kill me because it's so intense. It's bludgeon. And he goes, yeah, he rolls his eyes and goes, fair enough. So I do the first uh, weekend's commercials and their their, uh, um, sales went up 500%. Wow. So we were off and running. Mm-hmm. And then it was experimenting with this, experimenting with that. We'd do four, five, six commercials a week. And that went on for the next six years. Week in and week out, we did 1,100 different commercials. Wow. They went, from, uh, they went from 14 little stores in Southern California to 78 superstores, like Best Buy type wow. stores, in five states in four years. Wow. And we would do whole campaigns of Fred is coming. He's coming. Who's Fred? Fred is coming. And it was like, <laughs> and, 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 and as the time wore on, then it would get closer and closer. And then did this madness. You know, we would experiment with everything. Mm-hmm. We called it bludgeon advertising. And we have since made, there's a, uh, a couple of videos that we've made over the years. Uh, one is called uh, Laugh Now, Think Later, which is a long one of my whole federated um, and, and career doing that. And the other, the short one is bludgeon advertising. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. If you look up bludgeon advertising, you'll see all of the best federated commercials and the whole lead up and the whole thing that happened in the middle. I became a hardcore drug addict and then end up getting sober and then the commercials got, you know, way better. Okay, so wait. <laughs> so let's let's stop for a minute and let's talk about that because uh, it's very compelling to me that you were able to do all of that and have all of that success and... To have made the decision to get sober, I'm assuming you were either a drunk or a drug addict. Very much a drug addict. I'm, okay. I'm lucky to be alive. Why I'm not, um, 
dead is really you know i, I what was I your use drug like, of choice yes uh, <laughs> it, it, it literally was it was john belushi it okay, was i was a pothead so oh no I, <laughs> I i too much of anything was not enough uh, yeah and and i just wanted to be enthused and inspired <laughs> All the time. So were you the is up, that too much to uh, ask? So were you like a coca? So you like the up drugs? I'm assuming. I like the up drugs. Yeah. My first drug of choice was speed, mm-hmm. prescription speed, mm-hmm. and then I, I discovered grass, and grass was an epiphany to me, mm-hmm. and and I uh, you know I saw the world, and we shared our vibrations, and we laughed for no reason at things that weren't funny, and we nodded our heads in white boy fashion to the music, and bobbed and bobbed, and yes, it was good, and yes, I was creative, and yes, we could come up with lots of stuff, but you know, you gotta keep going, mm-hmm. and you get a little sluggish if you get too high, so you know we need a pick me up, and then it started with prescription speed, and then mm-hmm. it was crystal meth, mm-hmm. and then it was um, cocaine, mm-hmm. and it was brilliantly subtle, and and a little bit here, and a little bit there, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and and then you uh, you know you then it, then it owns you, mm-hmm. and um, at the end I but you uh, were incredibly productive through I was very all productive, but it was far, it was starting to fall apart, and I could show you videos so, today uh, so of I want to hear me what's, at my worst because I, I gained what, fifty pounds. I want to hear the bottom. I was out of my mind. What's the What's the bottom? Well, the bottom was um, I lived in Malibu Canyon, and I w- would go to. Uh, after working all day, I'd go home and go to the bathroom for a couple hours, and and come out, and then I would, um, you know, I'd gain, like I said, I'd gain fifty pounds. I would, I would. How I didn't do you, stop how do you gain weight doing speed I, and because cocaine? I, did, I because I didn't stop eating either, and yeah. I was drinking all the time now mm-hmm. to take off the edge. You know, mm-hmm. at first it was just, you know, quaaludes or tuanol or or something that would give you a light buffer to all of that um, maximizing that you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was maybe you couldn't get that, and so a beer now, and then another beer, and then it was a case a day, and so I cut back on the beer because I was gaining so much weight, and then I had a large tumbler filled with ice and one cap full of Canadian club and the rest sparkling water for a delightful spritzer. <laughs> and then it was two caps of Canadian club and then it was a glug and then it was two glugs and then it was mostly Canadian club and that was with me 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And so then I reached cocaine psychosis. So I go to my bedroom and I hear this outside the window. It sounded just like this. And you look out through the window and you turn the lights off and you try and see something out there in the trees and you don't see anything. So just to be careful, you put sheets over the windows and the doors and then you realize you can see silhouettes through sheets. <laughs> so you put quilts over the sheets of the windows and the doors and then you realize you can see around the cracks, around quilts. So you put nails at one inch intervals around the quilts around the sheets or around the windows and the doors. And I sat there because I got into guns. I was carrying a, a Beretta and a forty-five and a mercenary gun, which would fit in your wallet for all those times when you're walking down the street and somebody demands your wallet. You know, I could just take them out. And I had a short barrel 12-gauge shotgun. You don't have to aim. You just point and pull. Double-out buck, bam, done. End of problem. See? But the you truth, want you want your drug addicts to be walking around with lots of guns. Oh, sure. That's something you want. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that night I decided that I would go out and confront my destiny. Either somebody was out there or I was crazy. So I went out and I squatted down beneath the bedroom window and I waited. And I heard a rustle in the bush. And I jumped up screaming, now you die, mother. And I run through the bush with my 12 gauge. 
and they got away. So went back to the bathroom to celebrate. <laughs> and I had bolted the door, put a knife through the frame into the door, put a towel along the bottom of the door and over the window, run the bath. <sighs> now I could have another hit. And I have another hit. And then I, this is an attractive sight, 50 pound overweight, steaming, toxin, bloated, filled, drug addict, eyes rolled back, tongue out, head cracking on the floor over and over as I'm in convulsions. And I wake up thinking, that was a good hit. I should take a break, a breather, just a breather. Just like lay off for a little while. So about that time, my doc, my regular doctor, um, gave me a physical and he said, well, if you're lucky, you're going to die. You are a time bomb. You're going to have a heart attack or a stroke any minute and you will lose the ability to talk or move the left part of your body or something awful is going to happen. And wait, how old are you here? Um, 37, mm-hmm. I guess. And, um, he said, you know, you got to do something. And I said, uh, yeah. Um, but I was too humiliated. You know, I'd grown up in this perfect family with wonderful parents who didn't ever fight in front of us. And So you didn't come from addicts? You didn't come uh, from... No, no. my parents mm-hmm. didn't drink or use drugs or curse or fight in front of the kids. They were amazing human beings. My mother's still alive. She's 92. My dad died uh, like 10 years ago. I'm sorry. But he was an amazing man. And... Um, I was too. You know, you I had to have you had to have great parents to have had the confidence to live the life you've lived. I think. Um, I'm get, right, don't you think? Absolutely. You had to, you had to come from people that gave you a lot of support. Did they support you in what you did? did Absolutely. They, yeah. 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 My mother mm-hmm. taught me uh, taught me an appreciation for reading and uh, art. Taught mm-hmm. me how to draw, and um, my still one of my favorite things of life. And. Uh, my father gave me my willingness to work and enthusiasm and uh, work ethic. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing, the one thing I have, because I've, I've gotten smarter as I've gotten older, because mm-hmm. you know, I had moments of inspiration, but um, I was really stupid in a lot of ways. And, and you know, it was only by being under the trials of, of failure and disappointment and being let down and having to reinvent myself over and over and over again that I learned resilience and strength within and, and, um, you know, spirituality and uh, how to concentrate and how to learn and how to be. Did the spirit- I'm assuming going. the spirituality came with sobriety. Actually, uh, it preceded. Really? Yeah. Um, I learned to meditate in 1969, um, and really liked it. And it kind of sustained me, uh, even as a drug addict. And I and I prayed every day, God help me. I don't know how to stop. While you were using. While I was using. Wow. I wrote this poem. I'll read. It. I'll, I'll say it for you if mm-hmm. you like. It's mm-hmm. it's it's very psychedelic. Um, and it's what I on my last night uh, I overdosed in my studio, in 1984, and that night I was there by myself on Sunset in Doheny. Playing music, I thought, I've just got to get out of this. I've got to get out of this hand. I've got to get out of this. I'm saying, I just got to get And I started saying this poem, which I had written, and it was like a prayer. And it goes like this. There's a fidgety, fluttery horde, bumbling, mumbling, and bored in blind and obedient abandon, 
while the thinkers a bark in deep, deep, dark delusion say it's hopeless. They've concluded intellectually the mere meaning of infinity reveals unconditionally creation is an accidental, meaningless ordeal. And amid the muddled perplexity and fumbling fragility comes bumbling humanity, groping for the faith, the devotion that delivers peace of mind. Almighty mover, reveal my limitations, help control my inclinations. Only love and liberation can protect me from going down, down, down and losing my soul. Don't let me go down, down, down. Don't leave me alone. Mm. And I said it over and over and I cried mm. and I fell and my, and my friends discovered me <laughs> in my, you know, abyss mm. and called my parents. And they ganged up on me and talked me into going to rehab. The worst day of my life. I was certain I would never be creative again. I would never laugh mm -hmm. again. I would never have a good time again. My life was over. I was going into a mental institution. It was that simple. And I was wrong. Mm. <laughs> so I go in and I, uh, and I meet one of my best friends in life who became my roommate and he made me laugh the mm -hmm. first day and that was kept, what kept me going. It's mm. like he made me laugh. We became known as the hideous twins. <laughs> we had a lot of opinions from mere people uh, who were alcoholics because we were the elite of the mentally ill. <laughs> we were drug addicts. Thank you. <laughs> and they weren't talking about drugs or hardly even talking about alcohol. They were talking about like weird crap like steps or something that had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> And clearly they didn't know what they were doing and I just wanted to learn how to use sensibly. <laughs> and, um, and then a, a counselor came in two weeks in and he said, you know, you guys have a lot of opinions. You might try listening. It's your only hope here, you know. It's the only thing that's ever worked for anyone. And it doesn't work for everyone because you gotta want it. So if you're gonna want it, you gotta know what it's all about, how it works, why it works. So you better figure it out. And you can only do that if you listen. And you, he says, you know, you got some anger issues. If I were you, I'd get a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor about who you are, where you've been, what you've done, and where you're going, you're in for a rough ride. This life gets tricky. And when it's like, bing, this bell went off my head. I went, meditate. And I started meditating the next morning. Without anybody advising you to do that? No. Without guiding you? Wow. No. No, and I have not stopped for 32 years. So that was like your spiritual awakening right there. It, it was, yeah, it was an epiphany. Wow. And, and everything started changing really dramatically. Um, How so? Well, I got uh, you know, out of rehab and came back to L.A., and they said, just go to meetings, and I went to meetings, and I sat in the back, and I just showed up. And little by little, I learned things, and I was willing to do it, and little by little... Being willing to do it me meant that um, things were changing for me, and I learned about what these steps meant, and I could how, break can, them all can, down. Can you describe a little bit of how it changed you personally? We'll get to the work part, but what? How did it affect? How did it, like your marriage, your children? Well, I I had been married. Uh, I was in my second marriage that mm -hmm. time. I married. You know, I, I mentioned my childhood sweetheart. Mm -hmm my girlfriend from across the street in Jamestown, North Dakota. And we were together 10 years. Mm -hmm. And she left me because I was doing so many drugs and mm -hmm. she hated Los Angeles and she hated radio, mm -hmm. rightfully. And um, 
radio are terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> Louise, um, Louise is a Louise, wonderful person. Louise knows. <laughs> I absolutely know, yeah. and it, you know, it's kind of like where you learn early in life the demarcation between management and creativity, and management can't stand the thing they're selling. They're so resentful of it, and uh, and you're getting all the attention. Yes. Yes, yeah. and so yeah, you saw. There's a the lifeblood, after all, and then of, of course, course there are the the radio people that are uh, in programming, with with a few exceptions, but mostly they become insufferable. They do. They they are. Everyone's it, kissing up to them, and uh, and they get they get really important. It's and like entitled. a mini kingdom. In it was. It's exactly yeah. right. It's a mini kingdom, <laughs> and 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 once you have ratings, I don't refer to return phone calls. You don't understand. I'm number one, three to seven on K ninety four, wherever Des Moines, <laughs> Bismarck, uh, Los Angeles. Doesn't matter. It's the same mentality everywhere. Everywhere, and mm. it, and it was just ghastly to mm. watch. Mm. And each time when I was a program director, and all these guys I worked with, and we were all like friends, and we were close, and we were working hard, and we were believed in it. And the ratings came out, and they got important. And they would hop around the room, and then they would st stop preparing for their shows because mm -hmm. they had arrived, and people just liked them for who they were, and they didn't have to do all of that busy work, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was horrifying to watch. Mm -hmm. And anyway, but that's, you know, backtracking and beside the point. The... Um, so how did it change your life? Well, I, I had been in this in this marriage, a very bad marriage. Mm -hmm. We fought every day for five years. I mean, fist through the wall type. She could, you know, get me out of my mind. And I realized when I got sober, I can't be with this person. I've got, you know, I've got to get away. Mm -hmm. And so I I uh, told her that we we're gonna. That's it. Mm -hmm. I made arrangements, and uh, we split up. And I moved into a hotel. I gave her everything. Mm -hmm. I just said, I want my, my Buddhas, my books, and my clothes. And my I moved Buddhas, into this hotel. My Buddhas, my books, and my clothes. I love it. It's <laughs> a I, good name for and something. I, yeah. <laughs> and I sat in, in, this, in this hotel, and I went, I'm happy. I'm not fighting. Mm. I'm meditating. I have my work. I go to meetings. Um, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not in fear anymore. I'm mm -hmm. not having to find drugs every minute. I'm not having to get out of my mind and then live through the the debris. Mm -hmm. And I got really comfortable and was like, I'm fine with that. I don't ever have to have a relationship again for the rest of my life. I am. I don't want to be married. I don't want anything. I just want to be calm. Mm -hmm. And uh, nine months sober. I had lost 50 pounds. I went on a doctor-supervised fast. I took up martial arts. I was studying um, martial arts and doing yoga mm -hmm. and um, got in the best condition of my life. And the commercials were working great. The campaigns were, were through the roof. And a guy that worked for me in my studio at Sunset in Doheny um, was in my music department. And he met a girl at the bank. And she was a model, international model. Struck up a conversation with a black girl, really cute. And it's like, oh, yeah, we'll come over and see the music we're doing. She goes, yeah, sure. So she's in there, and he's playing music for this her. This is going to end up being somebody who becomes very famous, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> I walk in the room, and I see the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And I try to be cool, you know. I'm trying to just talk to Ron and say, hey, so what'd you mm -hmm. play her? And I'm catching glimpses off to the right. Mm -hmm. I'm looking, like, God. Damn. So, uh, so yeah. So you're at the bank. You're kidding, and you live like two blocks from here. You're no kidding. Well, that's why. And she got really uncomfortable, and she left. I said, Ron, who is that? She says, that's this model. I met her at the bank, and I said, does she sing? 
Uh, I think so. We'll get her back here tonight. So he calls and she says, yeah, sure, I'll come in. So the first thing we ever do together, mm-hmm. I, was work, I, I had written this show called Shadow Vision mm-hmm. uh, and we sold it to HBO. Mm-hmm. And it was this like a comedy experiment. It was kind of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at a thousand miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the bits in it was a little, uh, a little piece of music called Oh, You Perspire. And the chorus was, Oh, you perspire, yeah, you perspire, uh, oh, 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 and and so here we are singing it in harmony, and she's going, uh, 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 and I'm going, uh, 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 we did it a hundred times. It was so funny and so sexy. It was like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. I walk her out to the car, and it's like, well, it's really, thanks for helping us out here, and uh, so... And we've been together ever since. Oh, it dawned on me midway through that story where you were going. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was nine months sober. Um, For my birthday that year, I, uh, that was 1985, I asked her to move in with me. Mm -hmm. And um, we got married the following May. Mm -hmm. And our daughter was born in the following October. And that daughter is now Amber Stevens, now West. And she is the star of a series called Greek. And then she went and did 22 Jump Street. Nice. And now she's on the Carmichael show. And she's really quite successful and Beyonce beautiful. And then a few years later, we had China Rose. And China Rose is now uh, just graduated from SMC and is going on to her next thing in the beauty industry. And mm-hmm. she's equally beautiful and a really wonderful soul. And... I'm still as crazy about my wife today as I was when I met her. I love this story. Okay, so um, there's so much more career, but we're we're getting to the end. But I, I have a question for you before we go, Shadow. So you have done... God, I, I, I'm, I, I was telling Louise and, and John I was exhausted just reading your resume. I, I It sounds like there were moments when you were unemployed in your life here and there, but you seem to be incredibly resilient. Let me give you a quick rundown. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I go from then to uh, all of a sudden from Federated, I get on Hollywood Squares, and I help them out by doing the the, um, um, demo. And then they want to hire me, and I turn them down three times because I had a chance to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And so I was going off to do my first movie, and then I do Hollywood Squares, and it becomes the biggest hit of the year. And I do that for three years, and it's glorious, and it's exciting. And on the, on the heels of all that attention, I get American Top 40 when Casey Kasem left. Which it. is crazy. It is crazy. Now it's to a billion people a week in 110 countries around the world. They fly me around the world for 10 years wow. to every all the major cities, and the stations would pick us up and treat us, you know, take us to dinner and show us the highlights of the town. And I'd promote the show and do promotions for them. And everything, and then I get, uh, you know, my own television series, and it's produced by Fred Silverman. And then it, um, uh, as we're in production for it, he has a heart attack and isn't available for the completion or the negotiations mm. for it. And then they screw it up, and it only goes a short time, and it fails. But then another year later, I get Dave's World, and Dave's World becomes a big hit comedy series on mm-hmm. CBS, and that lasts four years. And at the end of that time, Everything goes away. American Top 40 was canceled. It's, it's a whole long story that goes into this. But and now, it's all and you're sober a number of you're many years uh, at this years. point. Uh-huh. And, um, and then Dave's World goes off, and mm-hmm. my agent fires me, 
and nobody will hire me for radio, for television, for advertising, or anything I had any expertise in. So I had to do what I had to do, and I had to, uh, new media was coming on. So I wanted to do a combination of syndicated radio and new media. Mm -hmm. And I came up with something called Rhythm Radio, the sound of the world in a good mood. (laughs) And I learned, I had to learn, I had to learn everything, Photoshop, Pro Tools, production, uh, everything that uh, I would need to do to be able to do everything myself to, to showcase this. How to fundraise, how to raise money, how to form corporations, how you know partnerships. And this goes on for a long period of time. We get it on in 30 countries and on the internet in seven languages. Jesus. And I'm working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And we uh, sell it to Nescafe for worldwide sponsorship for a year. And the dot-com crash happens. Mm. And they call the internet a fluke. And they wouldn't invest in it, and they wouldn't advertise on it. And uh, we started falling apart, and it goes bankrupt. And in the aftermath of that bankruptcy, I had to reinvent again. Jesus. And the number of things I've invented since that ended... Well, it started in 1997 and went on till about 2004 or five, And then there was, in the aftermath of that, I did Rock the World syndication, Party Planet syndication, Top of the World syndication. I did Cabo Wabo Radio and invented a whole <laughs> station for Sammy Hagar. Mm. That lasted a year. Then I did uh, Mental Radio. That lasted two years. Each one failed spectacularly, but was brilliant and beautiful. (laughs) And then there was, after Mental Radio, there was uh, Blackout Television. And Blackout Television was uh, two years with a brilliant... Oh, I thought that was now, according to your site. No, Blackout Television um, was for two years with Mm -hmm. this brilliant improv group, Mm -hmm. All Black. Mm -hmm. And you can go to blackouttelevision.com and see the whole story. And 85 episodes of podcasts that are really funny. Mm -hmm. And then we sold it to television. And we did a pilot for TV One called The Weekly Show. They changed everything. And then kind of watered down the whole idea. Mm -hmm. And then didn't pick it up. So in the aftermath of that, (laughs) so you can see my artwork on uh, Mm shadowart.com. And that is kind of chronicles all of this stuff. There wow. is, um, there's a whole a series called The Transdimensional Symbolism of Rocky Waters. Mm. Rocky Waters is a metaphor for difficult times. Mm. And, the, and the theme is, just when he thought he was winning the game, fate took a turn down a blind alley, and suddenly he was forced to confront fear, doubt, and change. And then it goes through all of the mental states of change until he surrenders and resurrects, and, you know, and, and then it's the... Uh, the epiphany that comes in in all that is given to you in surrender. And it's all like spiritual metaphors. Then this year I did Doomsday, which is a 10-foot-long piece, 5 feet tall, and its companion piece called Hope. And this is also 10 feet long. And the, the description is, amid the madness of, of a world in turmoil at this moment, There are countless millions in every faith and denomination all over the world praying for hope, for strength, and the power to overcome adversity. And it's all of the major religions of the world, and they're all doing it right now. Consciousness changes everything. And so this piece comes with a 57-page booklet Mm -hmm. 
describing every image. There's over a hundred images in it, mm-hmm. and it's the best that mankind has ever created, based on faith. It's cathedrals and it's temples and it's in the Himalayas and it's you know it's the Vatican and it's Christ and Buddha and Jesus and Krishna and the great masters and the great leaders and Martin Luther King and Albert Einstein and it's all of these great minds and great souls who produced great things on behalf of mankind. And so that was last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about the stuff that I have done that hasn't been put out in the public that are television shows and series and things like that. Because I was I studied martial arts with Benny Urquidas, Benny the Jet, undefeated world champion for 24 consecutive years in five weight divisions. And he said, when you get in the ring, bob and weave, keep moving. If you get hit, don't take it personal. Keep your sense of humor. Yeah. And that applies to, to the ring and applies to life. Yes, it Bob does. Bob and weave, keep moving. If you get hit, don't take it personal. Keep your sense of humor. And I've lived by that. And, you know, in my spiritual foundation in meditation that I believe in profoundly and meditate every day for about two hours. Wow. At once? In one shot? Um, combined. Usually it's um, about an hour and a half in the middle of the night and... <sighs> Uh, a half, maybe twenty minutes before I go to bed. Oh wow! And do do you, do you do you have a posture? Do you have a place? Do you have a? Yeah, I have a I have an altar that mm-hmm. I had built by a wonderful Chinese man named Po Shun about mm-hmm. God twenty years ago now, mm-hmm. and he made these little magic boxes about you know a foot long, mm-hmm. and I said, "Can you make me a big one? Mm-hmm. I want an altar." Mm-hmm. And so he built this over six months. It's about almost seven feet tall. It has doors that that have a secret way to open them, and it has um, um, secret places, drawers, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And and it's made from wood from all over the world, from the Amazon mm-hmm. and from Indonesia and from you know uh, Africa, and and it's it's quite a beautiful piece of work. And that's been my uh, go-to place um, every day as I've learned deeper and deeper kinds of meditation. I end up doing um, called Kriya Yoga. It's taught by uh, Paramahansa Yogananda Self-Realization Fellowship. It's non-denominational. It's a it's a it's a technique to take you within, mm-hmm. and and it involves uh, with um, directing the energy in your spine. It's quite difficult to do and requires a lot of concentration. But meditation is all about concentration. Mm-hmm. It's putting all of your attention on one thing, and that starts with the breath. And then you add. Do you have a mantra? Things. Well, there, I, I use different mantras. There mm-hmm. are different sequences that I end up doing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there are, you know, really powerful mantras. And, and, the, and, the, and the reason for it, it's a spiritually charged word. And they've been handed down over, you know, thousands of years that they enhance that focus. So if you're focusing on your breath just going in and out your, your nose mm-hmm. and you add other elements to that, that enhances your ability to concentrate and and because your mind tends to go, this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I got things. I got an email. I got to do. I'm always I thinking to about what I'm going to eat. You more, more yeah. what, what I'm going to eat, and mm-hmm. I'm not getting enough sleep. And mm-hmm. I'm chatter, chatter, chatter. And you, you don't try and stop the chatter. You mm-hmm. just redirect your mind to the one thing. And if you persist, your heart slows down and your body slows down. And it goes into a sleep-like state, and then you experience pure consciousness, and then you witness the I am, the mm-hmm. the you know the 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 soul the spirit the the part of you that isn't 
born, lives, and dies. Mm -hmm. And once you experience it, you realize that it too is infinite and that, that there is an infinite, never-ending source that you can connect to. But it takes work. It takes that effort. I'm I, I'm still on breakfast, so I have a long way to go. <laughs> I have a very long way. Okay, so speaking of breakfast, so now let's get. I really appreciate the conversation. I'm actually gonna listen to this and and consider it very seriously in my meditation practice. So thank you for that. Um, but to be not to be silly, but this is a serious question. Actually, do you have a guilty pleasure shadow? Is there anything that you do that like you hope that nobody knows catches you doing it or <laughs> or knows that you do it? Is there anything like that in your life? No, not really. I'm. I have. Um, you know, my. I love movies. I, mm -hmm. I'd rather be in a movie theater than almost anything. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and that's probably my. You know, eat popcorn, sit in movie, turn brain off. And so, know. is there any movie that you love that you can't believe you love it, but that you love it? Yeah. Well, one of my projects is forty years old now, and it's um, the. And I can't believe this. And my son is, is the same way. My son is in his 40s now, and, and he loves it more than me. It's the silent version of Thief of Baghdad done by Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And I fell in love with this, and I actually found this year, a couple of months ago, I'm going through storage, and I go a random box, random box, I open it up. I keep all of my notebooks, and I mm -hmm. have for decades. And I pick up a random notebook from 1975, and I open up to a random page, and it says, make beta copy of Thief of Baghdad and went, oh, I'm so insane. <laughs> so what I did is I started uh, experimenting with a contemporary soundtrack to this glorious piece of art. And I have done it over decades on VHS, you know, on cassette tapes, um, then professionally in studios. And then when, once I own my own studio, I've done countless versions. And then my son took it to a whole other level. I had, je um, you know, I, I ended up doing it with the Electric Light Orchestra. Wow. After years of experimenting wow. with everything known to man. And, um, and, and Jeff Lynne came to my house about 10 years ago and watched an earlier version of it and went, oh my God, it's like the music was written for this film. It's, it's kind of uncanny. And so we've been in contact and I've tried to get an evangelist to, uh, to get behind my effort in this. But we've done it as a hobby. Wow. And so my son took it to an, another whole other level and added multi-layers of ELO-centric pieces and elements that allow songs to float dreamlike between songs, orchestrated so that it's a seamless blend of, of one song into another that captures the heart and emotion of each moment in this mm. film. And it's quite remarkable. Wow. And so that, I, I guess that's, you know, it's it's one that's just kicking my ass because it's gone on for so long. And every time he comes down, he works for Boeing in Seattle, and he comes down and he'll spend two weeks, and then he'll, you know, I taught him Pro Tools, and, and he goes, that's all I want to do. I just want to be in it. I'll just be there and working on it. And if I need any help, I'll ask. Okay, fine. And so then he comes up with these complicated arcs of all these sounds and things that I have to figure out how to how to mix. And then when I'm done, I'm going, you know, it's kind of genius. <laughs> it's like, wow. I didn't think this would work. It's like making me crazy, but Jesus, it's pretty amazing. Well, so, I look forward to uh, to the completion and the product and the presentation. Someday, you know, I, I actually paid a, um, I paid a company to colorize a trailer. What I wanted to do in the ideal universe, if I could find the money, was 
my idea was to colorize it in the palette of my choice. And the palette was Maxfield Parish with all those kind of like sunset kind of uh, lighting, like dawn and dusk lighting. And so I hired these people to do the trailer. And it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. You just go, oh, my God, I could watch this. I want to see this whole thing, this whole fairy tale come to life. Because then it stops being just an old, hundred-year-old, black-and-white silent film. It becomes this vision of something like a contemporary art piece. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I've, I've got that that I've been showing people, but I have yet to find an evangelist. I tried to get it to different people, but... So far. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And Shadow, thank you so much for coming out and doing this. Um, I've enjoyed hearing your, wow, your incredible life. And I know that there's going to be a lot more coming from you. There's no doubt. Um, Well, who knows what tomorrow may bring? Traffic. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Shadow. All right, thanks. Take care. So Louise, John, that was like... That was a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm still processing it. My brain is going, I mean, that was so intense. I mean, you know, like I basically just said one thing and boom, he was off and he was, he was running. He's a storyteller. He is. It was like 15 lives. Yes. And he lives a lot of lives. (laughs) He lives a lot of lives. And I think for me, the takeaway with Shadow is resilience, resourcefulness, reinvention every r word he's got the r words i mean i can't believe how many times and how much balls he has had his entire life to just say i want it this way and if it's not this way i'm gonna quit and he quits bold bold and then they come back and they always want him back he's going back every time he's getting fired he's going back again they're like you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there were a lot of I. Um, you're. I'm sorry in there. It doesn't sound like. But boy, um, yeah, I'm really, back. really very familiar with that whole radio thing, and uh, you know they're selling creativity, but they're really angry at the creative people for getting all the attention. And so, and it's it, you know it kind of happens like in a small shop because every radio station is very local. So it's sort of the epitome of management and creativity butting heads. And now, but you, when you were in radio, you were at Premiere. You started Premiere. You were there the whole time. Yes, but I did not start at Premiere Radio, which is a syndicated radio company. I okay. started at Kiss FM writing for Rick Dees. Okay. And Rick Dees pretty much owned Kiss FM because mm-hmm. he was a, a great creative success, much mm-hmm. like Shadow Stevens. Mm-hmm. And so you saw the management's resentment of, of all of the attention that, that Rick was uh, getting. And it was always on. And, you know, it, it, it's just kind of like, it's, it's hard to explain, but I was so young that I, I got a really early lesson in uh, that sort of rivalry between selling a thing and being a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, because most people, as you sell paper clips, you figure out how to make them. And there's not a guy dancing around getting a lot of attention because he created the paperclip. Right. But in radio, you are dancing around getting a lot of attention if you're the afternoon disc jockey. Right. So now you, with Rick Dees, you're a writer. But when you get to premiere, are you still doing creative? Yes. Okay. I always did creative. Okay. So you weren't a suit. So it was a different situation for you to have that longevity there. Right. And we still had that rivalry between the management at Premiere Mm -hmm. and the creative department, which I ran. Mm -hmm. So we were selling the creativity, but the people that were making 
making the business decisions. Mm -hmm. They always wanted to kind of like grind the creative people down and, mm -hmm. and get, you know, more work for less money. And I would argue that they're not going to be funny if you've, you know, kind of like destroyed their spirit. So it's good for business if you're, if you pay these people well and if you're kind to them. So I've always fought that battle for creative people. So it sounds like Shadow's fought a lot of battles yeah. uh, to maintain his creative integrity yes. and um, his creative vision. He has a lot of creative but vision. He's, he's a fountain. So he kind of knows <laughs> if this thing isn't going to fly, I'll just... It sounds like, you know, his brain is just... Constantly firing. It's a replenishable resource for him. So, any uh, John, any any takeaway for you on this? Well, he seems really intuitive what people like. Yeah. What, what people think is funny. Because mm -hmm. it's, like, normal for him. He, he like, breathes it. Mm -hmm. You know, people... Most people would have to study or try to get into some zone it's like natural for him that's a good point yeah i i think a lot yeah i think that's a very good point i think a lot of what he did was based on his gut and his in, in his intuition yes i think you're absolutely right well another fantastic show thank you both so much and i look forward to being back with you guys all we do next tuesday on the road taken a new show every Tuesday, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the corner of Hollywood and Vine where I'll be using a bullhorn. Well, you can also get links to all this and more at VickiAbelson.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Please follow, subscribe, review, lather, rinse, repeat. Till next Tuesday. And mine and binge our archive while you're at it. It's rich with information, inspiration, and fun, damn it. Thanks for listening. And if you like to watch, keep your eyes peeled for our next Facebook Live. <laughs>